Amen. Well, we are in chapter 29, and we're going to finish up there, and we're going to try to make it to the end of chapter 31, which means I'm going to be doing a lot of summarizing. I'm not going to read word for word, um, so we'll touch in on a few verses and summarize some sections. Um, it kind of at this part in the book of Genesis, uh, you know, I had to make a choice whether I was going to break it down into like the names and then the travel, and I decided to try and put it together and kind of run a thread of uh, thought through this. So the title is Jacob Returns to the Land of Promise. And in here we're going to see the need for a wife to be assured of devotion and affection by her husband. We're going to see that temporary blessings can sometimes get in the way and delay us from entering into the plan of God. The call to remember Bethel, the early days of our devotion, and that God uses a an old cranky guy like Laban, to actually disciple his servant and called one, Jacob. Let's begin looking at verse 31 of chapter 29. And really, this is going to go into chapter 30 down to verse 24, where we see 11 of his sons and his one daughter are mentioned. So let's begin there at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. And then we see in verse 33, she had a son named Simeon. In chapter, uh, verse 34, a son named Levi, and a son in verse 35, Judah. So she has four sons. But the heartbreaking news is found in verse 31 is that she was unloved. Some translations may even have hated. The idea of this word is not so much as hatred as I want to do you harm and kill you, as much as a, uh, a comparison. So the Hebrew, um, one of the Hebrew idioms is to, is to compare love and hate. It's not the same kind of the way in which we use the word hate. Maybe the word prefer would be helpful to kind of understand how that is being used. And so the Lord sees this. And so her first son named Reuben, uh, she names him C, a son. Simeon is named Hearing because the Lord heard her. Levi is named Attached or Association. And Judah's name is Praise. Now here's the crazy thing that's going to go on. They're going to name their children as barbs against one another. I don't think that's all that's going on, but it certainly is going on. I mean, if you aren't familiar with this family, Jacob marries, works for seven years to marry a woman named Rachel. On the wedding night, that woman is changed out, and he doesn't realize that for the reasons we talked about last week, and he wakes up to the elder sister named Leah. They finished the week of the wedding festival, and then Rachel was given, and he asked to work for another, another seven years. There is controversy, and there is competition in this family. And so Leah um, is the one that's unloved. She's the one that kind of played the trick along with dad and deception upon him. I don't think trick or deception is a better word. And so she says, Reuben, which every time she would have called out Reuben, Rachel would have heard, see? <laughs> I mean, who she's asking to see? See a son. I've got a son. You're barren. I've got a son. And then, oh, the Lord hears me. Simeon, Reuben, see a son. You know, Simeon, oh, the Lord hears my prayers. And then Levi, which 
Levi meaning attachment or association. This is almost like a little window into her emotional state, isn't it? What does she want? She wants to be loved. She wants to be attached. She's married. It's a different kind of marriage, but not so uncommon in their day. And she is hoping to be attached. And she's hoping maybe now with this third son, with Levi, I finally will have an attachment to my husband. Doesn't happen. And then she has Judah. And she just refers to his name as praise. So for Leah, the unwanted wife, the wife of deception, all of the ministry of the temple is carried out through her descendants and the Levites. And the kingly appointed order in the nation comes from the line of Judah. And most significantly, it is from the line of Judah that comes Jesus, the seed that was promised to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And so she is highly favored here. Um, Rachel, verse 1 of the next chapter, saw that she bore Jacob no children. Rachel envied her sister. It's kind of a good line to underline right there. You get a sense of the, of the emotional state and the attitudes. And so she comes to Jacob and says, Give me children or else I die. She's going to die in childbirth. Not with this first son, Joseph, that she'll have. And this is she's going to give her handmaiden here. But that statement, we'll come back to it again later. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb so she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear her child on my knees that I also may have, a ch have children by her. And if you've been following the story, you're like, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea. I mean, the whole, this whole family seems like a bad idea. And yet it is through this family that the grace of God flows to you and flows to me. Through, through which the line of redemption comes, that scarlet thread of redemption runs through this crazy family. And so she's going to walk down that same path of taking a handmaiden and giving her to her husband. It was a cultural, uh, you know, I don't know if a norm is the right word, but it was culturally uh, something they did. And so because it was her handmaiden, it was her husband, the child was viewed as her, of course, not biologically, but she does get the chance to name her children. And so her first child, the first child born to Bilhah in verse 6 is Dan. Dan means judge or vindicator. Again, you can almost just hear these things, I'm vindicated. And then you could just hear Leah respond, oh, really? You know, Reuben, Simeon. And, um, I mean, talk about setting your family at odds against each other. And then her next child was Naphtali, which means my wrestling. So at verse 8, it says, And Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister. She envies. She is wrestling with her sister. And she says, Indeed, I have prevailed. prevailed so his name shall be called Naphtali. My wrestling. Whooped you. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the attitude that's in the, ho in the house. So unfortunate. Rachel is not seen in a beautiful light here at all. When we first meet her, it's intriguing, and she runs to her father, and there's this love story between Jacob, and there's this love story with Rachel, but she now is in this place where she is in a fierce rivalry with her sister, 
and she's wrestling with her sister, and she is speaking words. They are speaking words through their children's name to one another. How we need to learn to find contentment with where we are. Give me children or I'll die. And it's actually in giving birth to her second son. She's going to have Joseph, but she will have another son by the name of Benjamin, and she will die in giving birth to him. And we need to learn to find contentment in our place. Here, here's a psalm that you know. Help me finish it. The Lord is my shepherd, I what? Why do we say shall not want? Because the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one that's caring for me. He's the one that's taking me into the green pastures, the still waters. He's the one that makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He's the one that's looking after me. I'm good. I have everything that I need because my shepherd will take care of me. Even when the grass isn't as sweet and the stream isn't as, as you know, flowing and I can trust in the Lord. My eyes are on him and I can trust in him for the good things that he wants to do. Contentment. We have to learn to walk in contentment. And these ladies certainly are not as manifested by the comments we get of their jealousy and their hurt and their pain, the lack of love and the wrestlings that they have with one another. And so this is it's devolving into a bitter situation, isn't it? And the Bible calls us to not be bitter against each other. The Bible calls us to forgive one another. That we should walk in this spirit of uh, reconciliation. Now the reality is this. People can do things to you, to us, to me, and they can never, ever, ever ask for an apology. I won't ask for a show of hands of who that's happened to because I think all of you are earthlings. So I know that has happened. You've had people that have done things that have hurt you and they've never picked up the phone to say, I'm sorry. They never said, let's have a coffee. They never come to your house and said, will you forgive me? That happens. Now, so that does happen that people will do that. But how do you respond to that person? Because when we are even touch on the subject of don't hold bitterness, the response that we can begin to have is, well, wait a minute. They haven't asked for forgiveness. I'll, I'll forgive them as soon as they ask. But we've been told to walk and to live like Jesus. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down at them. And one of the last things that he said was, Father, what? Forgive, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, we are not universalists, which means we don't believe at that moment Jesus forgave the entire, um, uh, entirety of, of humanity. We believe that people must come and they must confess Jesus Christ as the Lord. And they must um, repent of their sins and have faith in him and they will find reconciliation. So what was he saying when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Was he only directing that at the ones that were going to repent? Or was he like, my heart is to forgive the entire world and some will come and some will not. But my heart is this, forgive them, Lord. It's the posture of forgiveness. The idea that says, well, when they repent, I'll forgive Listen, we're not capable of that. That's like, that, that's, that's uh, slicing things super thin. Because what happens is if we hold on to bitterness, it becomes a root of bitterness. And it begins to change our, our, our life and our attitude and our countenance. It begins to change the relationships around us. And maybe that person finally comes 15 years later, but you've walked in bitterness for 15 years. Do you think you're going to turn it off just like that? 
Now, you've created a pattern. You've created a sinful life in, in uh, being unwilling to forgive. So you may not be reconciled to that person who has not yet come that you've decided to have a posture of reconciliation towards. You may not be reconciled with them. The Lord will not be reconciled with all of humanity. Some will suffer his wrath and his judgment. But we are told to trust that into the hands of the Lord. We are not the ones that, that um, meets out vengeance. That's God. So keep your hands out of God's pockets. Let him have what is his. Vengeance is his. He says, I will repay. So what, what do we do here? You come to the place to say, I am willing, if they were to come to me, to reconcile. They have not come, so the relationship will not be what it was like before. However, I will not hold a grudge or bitterness, and I will welcome the day when they come back to me. That is how we have to walk. Is it easy? To the humble, he gives more grace. No, it's not easy. But that is what we've been called to do. The Bible says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you want to hold on to some leaven of bitterness in your life and think that it's not going to permeate into the other relationships you have, you don't understand sin and you don't understand bitterness. You, it, it can't, you can't contain it. You can't control it. I'm going to keep it just here. I'm just going to hold this, this, this nasty feeling towards that person because they've hurt me. But you can't do that because it permeates. It is bitterness and unforgiveness. It's a sin. And that is something that will permeate your entire life. Well, you, you, you don't know what happened to me. I don't. I don't know what happened to you. But this isn't my, I didn't write this book. I'm not God who says, be like my son. I'm not the one who has said 70 times 7. I just get to pass on the message. But you already know the message because you read it and the Spirit speaks to you. I just get to remind you of some things. We get to remind it of things corporately so that we walk as a community in this kind of a truth. Forgiveness is the attitude we are to hold. Walk in the contentment the Lord has given to you. Let's keep on moving on in these verses. Verses 9 through 13. Uh, Leah stops having children, so she takes her handmaiden Zilpah and gives her to Jacob. And um, you notice that Jacob's not protesting any of this all the way along. And she has uh, two sons, Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means happy. So she's feeling good about what's happening here. In verses 14 through 21, uh, kind of a, yeah, another twisted turn in this family. Um, Leah is going to have more children, but let's read what happens. Verse 14, now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Rachel has no children of her own. Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah's standing there, hands on hip, finger in the face. And she said, you must come into me tonight. I hired you. And indeed she did. And he went into her and she ended up having a, a, a child and will go on to have two more children. So what's the deal with mandrakes? Well, they were believed to be an aphrodisiac. They thought if you were to eat them, they would make you um, uh, have the ability to conceive. So you can see why Rachel would really want these. And so she says, hey, Leah, let me have those. She goes, you're out of your mind. You took 
my husband. I mean, can you imagine the way the argument would go from there? I took your husband. You took my, you're the one that conspired with dad to go in. Now, we don't know what either, I mean, obviously Leah was complicit. Okay, she's in the room. Um, Rachel, we don't get much commentary. Is she just submitting to dad? Is she like stolen away? Is she gagged and tied up in the back of a tent? I mean, we don't know where she is and what exactly she felt about this. But we know how she feels about it now. But, but I could just hear Rachel firing back saying, your husband? I don't think so. That was my husband. And you snuck in. But this is, again, it gives you an insight. So Leah goes on to have two more sons and a daughter. The names are Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. And Issachar means higher. That's, this is kind of a strange family that is naming their kids. And they're like the, it's like you can almost see that they have no communication except through the names of their kids. And how, I can, I mean, I, it doesn't say it. But I can just imagine them with the right inflection and the right tone calling their kids' names while staring at each other. What'd you say to me? Oh, no, I'm just calling my son. Zebulun is, and I think this again gives us an insight into the heart of Leah, means to dwell with. And, you know, this is her desire, is that she would find that place and that in verse uh, 20, it says, And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me. She's looking for that. And she is an unloved wife. Uh, Dinah is a feminine form of the name judge. And again, a statement, well, God is judged. And, and here he has shown his favor to me. In verse 32 through 20, um, 22 through 24, Rachel is finally um, able to have children. It says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived, bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another. So Joseph name, Joseph's name means he shall add. Again, this point of contentment. She just got a son after all these years, and the only thing she can think about is having another son. How is contentment in your life today? Are you content with the things that you have? What God has done, how he has blessed, how he's brought things in, how he has withheld things from you. You know, there's some things that you don't have today that you can actually look at and with the, you know, the... Uh, the uh, opportunity of time you can say I'm glad I don't have that it's a blessing for them but I'm glad I don't have that because I know myself and I know what I would do with something like that and you can you can begin to identify this but this lack of contentment add Lord add add more I need more I need more with food and clothing with these things we should be content and it's not even a house in that verse with food and clothing we should be content Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. And this is something that, uh, I mean, all of us um, need to grow in. It's a continual class that we are enrolled in, in the Lord. You know, there's 101, 201, 301. It keeps on going until the day you get home. And we're learning the lesson of contentment. And I'll just share from you my own life and how early days in ministry, you know, 
man, I just, the, over in Australia, I wanted to see the ministry grow. And um, it didn't grow at the church that I, I, I was serving at. And then I wanted to see it when I was a youth pastor. And we saw some, the hand of blessing and kindness and favor upon the Lord. But I was, but I was kind of like her. You'll add, right, Lord? You're going to add. And of course, I mean, here's the thing. We want to see people added to the kingdom. We want to see the ministry expand for the glory of the Lord. But there's this fine line for pastors and people in ministry, and you can relate it to your own circumstances, where you're wanting something more, and yet it can create such a discontentment with where you are at that moment. So in the early days um, of my life, this was something that I was working through. It didn't help that I was around... Um, Rebecca and myself were around somebody early on where, I mean, they, they wanted, I mean, they were like, Rachel, give me or I die. And we, we kind of began, we felt that, we were around that. And so it was a constant battle in my mind and my heart and my life to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall know what. I'm content with what you're doing, God. I'm not content for more people to not come to you, but I'm content with whatever you do and whatever you place in our hands. And um, I remember uh, Pastor Brian Broderson, when I was on staff at Vista, had every, all the pastors on staff. We read this book called, from Kent Hughes called Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome. The name kind of just tells you everything you need to know, really. And it was such a great book and just began to pray that in. And as we were headed out here, just often praying, just we want to be content with whatever the Lord does. And I wasn't content every day. I mean, it wasn't. There's times where there, you know, 10 people out at a Wednesday night, and I'm like, oh my gosh, why am I even here? Not a good attitude, not proud of it. Don't repeat it, all right? I'm just being honest. And, and, and so we all can have this, you're going to add, right, Lord? Because I got to have it or I'm going to die. And indeed, she ends up dying. Be content with the things that you have. God is sovereign and He is over your life. Be content with what you have today because we don't even know that we have tomorrow. Well, I'll be content when it comes, but what if Jesus comes back now? Then you've missed out on contentment. And really contentment is a, 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 I mean, it's one thing that talks about our own internal heart, but it also is connected with our praise and our worship, our thankfulness, don't you think? And if we're not content, then we can't give God the thanks and the praise that he is deserving of. So much in these names. Well, one, what do you possibly glean from, you know, two wives, two handmaidens, and a conniving husband named Jacob? Well, here's something. The need for love and honor. Now, don't go duplicate his situation. But if you have a wife, or you ever want to have a wife, then you need to know this. She has the need to be loved and to be honored. And this is something that's missing in this family, neither of them really feel it completely. And Leah certainly is at the top of this list. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. And then you get this little zinger at the end, that your prayers may not be hindered. I can't figure out my wife. I'm not going to dwell with her in understanding. She's a crazy lady. I don't know what she thinks. I don't know what she wants. It always changes. Well, listen, to the humble, he gives more grace. You're a Christian husband. You call upon the name of the Lord. You have access to divine resources. 
to dwell with her in understanding. And this is how you honor her, is by dwelling with her as a weaker vessel, as one that is an heir together with the grace of life, and that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, terrible relationship with my wife, but I pray every day. To who? Because evidently he's not listening to you. If you are not dwelling with her in understanding. Well, that's not true. Well, okay, then you can interpret this. Well, it says hinders. It doesn't say he won't hear. Okay, you can get lucky every now and then and get one through. But is that really the way you want to live your Christian life? Is that the way you want your marriage to be? And so the Lord is giving a sober warning to husbands. Love your wives. Honor them. Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The love that a Christian husband should have for his wife is a spiritual love that is a sanctifying love. We keep on reading. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does his church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we see there's an emotional love. There's a nourishing and cherishing. Jesus gave himself for the church back up in verse 25. So he gave himself. There's a physical Love. There's a, a spiritual love, and there's this emotional nourishing and cheering. This cherishing, that is how the Lord would have you to show um, love and honor to your wife. Moving on, chapter 30, verses 25 through 36. Jacob is persuaded to remain with Laban. He, after the birth of Joseph, he's like, let's get out of this crazy town. But um, he is persuaded to stay. And so verse 25, it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. So he's up front, I want to go home. And um, Laban responds in verses 27 through 33 and makes a super generous offer. He says, name your wages. What is it that you want? Look at verse 28. Then he said, name your wages and I will give it. And then Jacob's going to come up with a really interesting pay scale. <laughs> and um, it's basically, um, all right, Here's the deal. Um, the spotted, the streaked, and the brown, uh, the brown uh, sheep, the spotted and streaked goats are mine. Everything else will be yours. And um, he, uh, Laban responds, and he thinks this is a, a, a great deal. And um, he said, responds in verse 34 and says, Oh, that it were according to your word, you crazy son-in-law of mine. Have you learned nothing after these 14 years of tending my flock. And, and so he's asking for his wages to be set according to that. The, the common way for it is you got a portion of the milk, you got a portion of the, of the uh, wool, and then in some cases you got a, a, a portion of the offspring. One ancient text sets it at 20%. So he's basically saying, what percentage do you want? And Jacob comes back and says, I don't want a percentage of any of it. I just want the ones that have different markings and colorings. But what is known of these 
sheep and these goats of this area as there was a dominant gene among the sheep to be white and there's a dominant gene among the goats to be black. And so it wasn't very common that there was a deviation from this and they gained this from historical records. So they agreed to it, but look at verse 36. Then, uh, then he put a three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. So, oh, I didn't read the other verses. I'm sorry, verse 35. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted and the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it and all the brown ones among the lambs and gave them to his sons. And then he put the three-day journey. So he pulled them out of the reproduction, which means that there was only black and there was only white left behind, which in Laban's mind, ha ha, gotcha. You're not going to have any. Again, he tricks him. He deceives him. Now, Jacob is lured away from what I'm going to say is the call of God on his life. We don't read it there in verses 27 through 33. But I believe it's God is speaking to his heart and he's saying to him, it's time to go home. You know it's time to go home. There was something in the birth of Joseph that said, go home. And so he tried and he remembered what he had experienced at Bethel and the promise of God and the way his father had blessed him. The Abrahamic blessing that had then gone to his father now was upon him. And yet he's lured away from the call of God on the hope of some temporary blessing. It can be a scary thing to follow God when he says, step out, go home. You mean the place where Harry wants to kill me, his brother Esau? Yeah, that place. You mean to the place that I have nothing, that everything is now in the hands of somebody else? Yeah, I want you to go to that place. Yeah, but this guy's offering me, like, name my wages kind of a salary. I can't, I can't walk away from an offer like that. I mean, i got to be practical, God. I want to be, I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to name my wages. And he stays, which... We're going to find out results in his wages being changed 10 times because God blesses him. So he's still enrolled in that school of learning to not be a conniver and a schemer by the one who's conniving and scheming him. And so he's going to continue to reap what he has sown. And it's not so much that it's a judgment on him as much as it is a discipleship in his life to change him and make him to be the man that God wants him to be. So he's there, and um, the way that Jacob has asked for his wages to be set um, is, is quite strange. So let's read verses 37 through 43, just so you can see the way in which he has decided to set his wages based upon having, you know, the brown and the speckled. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks and the gutters and the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs, did the same kind of thing, and he brought forth um, these other lambs, the brown ones, and, and so forth. And this is what he was doing. So, verse 30, 43, Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels, 
and donkey. God blesses Jacob. And you're like, well, what in the world is he doing with these, these you know, uh, saplings? What, what is it that he's doing? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he's doing because it, it makes no sense in the natural what's happening. The only thing that makes sense is that when Jacob is defending himself later, he says, God showed me this in a dream. So if you, if you skip ahead to chapter 31, verse 9, it says, So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at that time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks uh, were streaked and speckled and gray spotted. So that's what happened. God gave him a dream and he followed this out. It's not that the saplings in the water were doing something. It's like God knows the gene pool, and he was figuring out a way to persuade these little you know, livestock and a way for Jacob to identify which ones were which because there was no other way. It's a miracle that's happening. And he changes his wages ten times, but God says it doesn't matter. I'm watching out for you. I'm taking care of you. I said I was going to prosper you and bless you, and you're not where I want you to be, but you're going to get there. But I'm going to continue to be true to you. I think this ex- just shows us that we can trust in the Lord. Um, Psalm 37.5, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He saw the dream. He trusted the Lord and the Lord is taking care of him. Psalm 23 verse 46, Jesus commits his spirit to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and 8, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for not trusting God and not suffering wrong but instead taking a brother to court. And so whatever it is that's happening in your life, and then maybe there's a conniver and there's a schemer and there's somebody that's undermining you and it seems like everything is stacked against you, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in the Lord to take care of you. So in chapter 31, we kind of touched in it already, but we see that Jacob has had enough and he is ready to go. Let's pick up at verse 1 when we see that he departs in secrecy. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's to your family and I will be with you. Look at verse 7. Yet your father deceived me and changed my wages ten times. When he talks to Rachel and Leah about what's going on in his countenance, he says, look, he's changed my wages ten times. Return to the land of your father. He wants them to come home. And so he explains to them what has happened and how God had spoke to him in a dream, but how your dad keeps changing things ten times. I'm being told to come home. Are you all going to want to come with me, basically, is the conversation. But in verse 13, we read, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. He says, this is it. You you remember my story at Bethel that I fell asleep and I saw the gateway into heaven. And God promised to be with me and prosper me. And I set up that pillar and I anointed it to commemorate that encounter with God. And he is saying, come back to the land. And that he is going to bless me. 
Isn't it good that the Lord is willing to call us back to those earlier encounters we had with him? We can get off again delayed in following and obeying the word of the Lord because of an offer of some temporary blessing. We're not walking out what the Lord has planned for us. And he says, well, I tell you what, remember Bethel? Remember those encounters you had with me? Remember those quiet times? Remember those devotions? Remember your service unto me? Remember that sweet fellowship you had with the saints? Remember those encounters you had with me? It's time to come back there. That's what the Spirit of the Lord would be saying to us. Revelation 2, 4 through 5 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. It's Ephes- church at Ephesus. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do what? The first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He called them back to the early days of their faith where there was passion, where there was love. Now they're in a place where they have left their first love. And the word actually there in verse 4, the Greek word, I forget the actual word itself, but the meaning for left is sometimes translated divorce. It's a a strong, strong word. And so you get the the Lord's like, you're done with me. You're not... We're not meeting together. You need to come back to that place of your first works, your first love. Are you, is Troy, not just you, are, are we at that place of the early passion of our faith? Are we allowed other things, offers from Laban to distract us and keep us away? Well, the Lord is calling you back to himself. Remember your encounters and how about go have some new ones? Fresh ones. Do those first works again. And so, that's what's going to happen. He's making the case to Rachel and Leah. Your dad's changed my wages. This is what God is saying. Verses 14 and 15. They answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and has completely consumed our money. Sold? Yes, For seven years of labor to who? To the guy they're talking to, to Jacob. But what, remember we talked last week that it was a bride's price that was paid. And that an average bride price would have been somewhere around 40 or 50 shekels. But he paid seven years, which would have worked out to be about 84 shekels. So there was a good lump of money, 84 shekels times two. And that money was to be their dowry, but he, we just read, has what? He's consumed it. He's not given it to him. This is a materialistic, money-hungry, grabbing family. And they're pretty bitter about it. And they're like, let's go. At the end of verse 16, it says, whatever God has said to you, do it. That's a pretty good line, even coming from a messed up family. Whatever God has said to you, do it. That pretty much applies in any circumstance, in any circumstance or situation that you would face, is that you would do that, you'd walk that out. So verses 17 through 21, they're packing their bags to leave, and Rachel decides that she's going to take something. She's going to get back at her dad somehow. So she goes in, and she, verse 20, um, and Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he's going to leave in secret, but I'm where I'm looking for the verse where, oh yeah, the previous verse, verse 19. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. So these were kind of um, 
uh, their teraphim, their names, they were images that represented deceased ancestors, and they would venerate them, they would worship them, and look for favor. There's a picture of them. Could you imagine that being your God? That looks like the preschoolers had a good art day. And, <laughs> and, and I mean, it's like, they, they, these are the gods that you are wanting to follow. Now, is Rachel taking these because she's still worshiping them? Text isn't silent. I would say maybe there's something, but I think it's mainly just like, I'll show you, Dad. I'm going to take it. It's, it's, an, it's a vindictive act. And so she takes it, and it's going to really upset Laban, and he's going to come in hot pursuit of them as they have snuck away in the night, so to speak. So we come to verses 22 through 42, and we read, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days. Now, we don't know how long he waited before he pursued. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. Some have said there's no way he could have overtaken him in the mountains of Gilead because that's 350 miles away. Jacob couldn't have traveled that fast. So maybe there was a time from when he heard, three days later, your kids left. Then he got things together, and then they left, and he overtook him in a short order. So they, they're booking it to catch up with them. And there's a map there, just so you get a little idea of where they're traveling. Up at the top is Haran. This is where all the disputes are happening, that red arcing line coming down. The first place that it stops is Gilead. So the mountain range there in Gilead is where he would have journeyed. So he's, he's basically back in the promised land. He's back home. And that is where he catches up with him to have a discussion. In verse 24 God warns Laban. God spoke to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said, don't touch him. Don't say anything good and don't say anything bad. Leave him alone. And so Laban's coming with ill um, in his heart and mind, and God stands to warn him. Verse 25, so Laban overtook Jacob, and Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughter like captives taken with the sword? Okay, that's a little bit dramatic there, guy. They don't like you anyway. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away. Yeah, it's a big might. I might have sent you away with joy and songs and timbrel and harp, or I could have sent you away with the sword. I mean, Jacob does not trust this guy for good reason. He says, you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you've done foolishly in so doing. And I think in Jacob's mind, it's like, I just got to go. If I talk to him, he's going to persuade me again. I just don't trust myself. Let's go. He says, it's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because... You greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? <laughs> Get a god that can't be stolen. That's the, that's the takeaway from there. I'm, our god is spirit. And he cannot be taken away from you. He is always present with you. No circumstance can separate you from God. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Laban doesn't know that. So he wants, why did you steal away secretly? Why did you steal my gods? And so the, Jacob, I'm just going to summarize the end here. Jacob gives the, the explanation. He says, because you're a dirty, sneaky thief. You changed my wages. I can't trust you. I don't know what you're going to do. As far as your gods, I haven't touched them. He doesn't know that Rachel has taken them and hid them in the camel. So Jacob says, search the house. Whoever you find them with, let them be put to death. And so they begin to search for um, these household gods, the teraphim. They're tearing up all the tents. They can't find them. Laban comes to Rachel and she says, I'm having my period. You don't really don't deal with me right now. Don't make me mad, Dad. PMS could be a bad scene here. So leave me alone. I'm not getting off this camel. He's like, okay, okay, well, you stay on your camel. And so they're not found. Jacob is going to have to deal with those idols, chapter 35, years later, because of the trouble they bring into the house. And he's going to go back to Bethel. He's going to devote himself to God, and he's going to have to get rid of them. So we see that he is a work in progress. He's being disciplined. But he doesn't know it right now that that has taken place. And so it closes in verses 43 through 55 where Jacob and Laban enter a peace agreement. <laughs> the two tricksters, the two deceivers, the two hill catchers decide that they've had enough of each other. And so we pick up in verse 43, Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters and these children are my children and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine, but what can I do this day to these daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now, therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set up a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. It's a big mound of rocks. And they ate there on that heap. And Laban called it, Jager Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid, and Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and you this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. We like to pick up that phrase as a kind of a, a term of endearment and like, Hey, may God watch over us. But actually, original context. I don't trust you, dude. Well, I don't trust you. Well, let's make a heap. Now, may God watch between us that we don't pass and we don't do something wrong. So it actually is not like, oh, Lord bless you, Lord bless you. It's like, don't touch me. <laughs> and I won't touch you. And so they make this agreement, and he heads home, and um, they're never seen again. So they make this pack, and we have no account that they ever saw one another. So lots of territory here. Some of the things we talked about was the need to be content. I think we could have talked a whole lot about speaking only those things which are good for the necessary edification and building up of the body of Christ. We didn't. But through the names of the children, there's barbs and jabs going all the time. Talked about the need to show devotion and affection to our wives. When I say wives, I mean it in the, in the possessive sense, not the plural sense. <laughs> just, just, just to be clear. Don't go for the temporary blessing that's going to delay the promised blessing. Go for it today, wholeheartedly. Remember the early days. Remember Bethel, where you met God and 
it was joyful and there was revelation and there was insight. You can get that back. Just go back and do the first works. And God disciples Jacob through the difficult relationship with Laban. Maybe that's an answer to some of your prayer requests. God, why is this person in my life? Because I want to change you. And I will use even this scoundrel or the scoundrel of circumstances to influence you to be the man or the woman that I want you to be. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Father, thank you that you work in our lives. And we see it so clearly. You're not looking for all stars. You're not looking for those that are perfect and have it all together. Lord, you're willing to take people like this and put a call on their life to manifest your goodness and manifest your grace. What stands out to us, Lord, on the one hand is a messed up family, but more so as a scarlet thread of redemption that runs through this family to be a blessing in our families as we speak. Thank you for your work. Thank you that you didn't give up on redemption. Lord, you work through people like us, and you call us back to the place of our first love. May we respond. May we deal with the bitterness. May we find contentment.